right, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is right in the middle of the Bible, right after Psalms and Proverbs. If you don't have one, you can open up to uh, the little black Bibles in front of you to page 555. Page 555, Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Just to review a little bit where we've been in Ecclesiastes, there's an overarching theme of life being either vanity or futility, depending on the translation you're reading. Some translations even say meaningless. I've been reading out of the CSB during this study. Um, The Black Bibles are the ESV. The ESV says vanity. This one says futility. The NIV says meaningless. And all of those words are trying to capture this idea of vapor or mist. So life is good. It's real, but it just doesn't last very long. He, He says it's like grasping after wind. It's Wind is there, but you can't hold on to it. You can't control it. It doesn't last. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us that's what life is like. And that transient, short-term, we're-out-of-control feeling presses us to reach out for God himself. And so this week, we're focusing on the concept of contentment. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're looking at contentment. There's a verse in our reading today, verse 8, that in this translation, it says the word content. In the ESV, it says satisfied, and the Hebrew word is to be full. So the question is, spiritually speaking, are you full in God, or do you have this emptiness where you're just grasping after things of this world, trying to fill that emptiness within you? Have you ever gone to the grocery store on an empty stomach? Have you ever done that before? It's not very smart, is it, right? I mean, there's two ways to go and shop at the grocery store. One way is you go with the list, and you're full, And you can just focus on the list, boom, 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 and you're out of there, right? But if you go empty, there's this kind of like weakness you're feeling, right? And you see something like, oh, I should get that too. And oh, that looks good. And you just start throwing things in your cart. You get distracted. You're hungry and frustrated. You're in a hurry. You don't really want to start eating stuff out of the basket. And so you're mad that the people in front of you are taking so long. And it just kind of messes up the whole experience, right? You start to act a little wonky. And I think what we're going to see in this text today will seem on a first reading, like if you're reading ahead, it seems totally random. It seems like he's just going through a list of random things that are broken in the world, right? Thanks, Solomon. You're being depressing. You're talking about all the brokenness in the world again. But I think it all links back to this idea of being full, being satisfied or content in God himself. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, I observed... All the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy or envy of another. This too is futile or vanity and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms, his hands, and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility or vanity under the sun. There's a person without a companion. Without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content or satisfied with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. 
Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There's no limit to all the people who were before them. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile or vanity and a pursuit of the wind. Let me pray and ask God to teach us, to help us. God, we pray that you would teach us. We thank you for your word. We believe that you speak to us through it. But God, we continually need to be reset in our own hearts so that we would be listeners, so that we would be learners. And so we pray that your spirit would enable us to have open minds and open hearts, that we could have a humble posture of listening and learning, that you would shape us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, it, it seems on a first reading that it's random, just seems like broken stuff in the world. But I think it all kind of connects down to verse 8 where he says, you know what, I saw a lot of good things that happen in the world are connected to people's jealousy, their envy, their lack of contentment, their lack of uh, ability to be satisfied in what God has given them. So they're just pressing and pushing ahead. And so this contentment issue or negatively lack of contentment is what causes the oppression in the world. And then the second section we'll look at is how lack of contentment causes isolation. Whereas opposite of that would be if you have real contentment, you're able to build friends and build community. And then the third section we'll look at is how contentment presses us forward to focus more on character than achievement. Where he talks about kings, right? The king is so focused on his kingdom that he lacks wisdom. He starts to lose what got him there in the first place. So the first section is a focus on oppression. Contentment fights oppression. And I believe this is poetic language, and he's going to use really strong language because he's trying to pull us in to feeling and hurting with those who have been oppressed. So look again at verse 1. He says, Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. Um, I don't know if you remember these late-night commercials we would have uh, back in the day, I think this was in the 80s and 90s, I don't know, but it was one of those where they would show suffering people and they would show really painful pictures in order to get you to give towards that uh, subject. Um, and I'm not going to comment on whether that's wrong or right, but I do know that in our culture, I think we started to build up a resistance to that because we've been manipulated, we've been sold so much that we kind of keep things like that at arm's length. We don't allow ourselves to feel as much. And I think as Christians, we have to recognize, you know, sometimes we need to let ourselves feel that hurt and recognize people are hurting. So we live in a weird time where we're capable of seeing more hurt than we can possibly respond to, right? So it's not your individual jobs to fix all the hurt and brokenness in the world, but don't run to the other extreme where you say, since I can't fix everybody's hurt, I just won't feel it, right? That's another extreme you can run to to kind of emotionally protect yourself. So here he's trying to pull you in. A Christian should have some sensitivity to the oppression that's around you. Oppression means simply someone taking their power, hurting other people so that they can have more power, so they can have more stuff, so they can get ahead. That's what oppression means. So that's what he's talking about here. He's like, I've seen these tears. 
He, he wants you to be brokenhearted, and apparently he's brokenhearted as well. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. He's saying you should feel sorry for them, right? Your heart should break for these people. Verse 2, oh, excuse me, now he repeats himself. Halfway through verse 1, he says, Power is with those who oppress them. Again, they have no one to comfort them. He, he repeats that, no one to comfort them twice, trying to pull you in to feel bad for them, defining it there as there's people using their power, people take their power, and power's on their side, and then they oppress others with it. Now, Marxism says that anytime anyone ever has power, they oppress automatically, right? I think in our sinful state, that's true, right? As sinners, that's true, but there's the possibility, again, going back to our main idea, that you can be content in Christ, and when you're content in Christ, you can take your power and serve others with it, right? That's, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. Instead of mistreating others with your power, you use your power to help others. That's the responsibility of being a believer. And so he goes on in verse 2, and he says, So... All this was so bad, all this oppression, all this evil in the world was so bad, I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. He's talking in very extreme language here, right? He goes on and says in verse 3, But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So I know some of you, you've, you've gotten to that point, right? Where you're like, I wish I had never been born. Other Bible characters have said that as well. You're so overwhelmed with frustration, with evil, with weight on yourself or on others. You're like, man, I wish, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never seen this. Now, again, here, there's this biblical balance where as Christians, we should be able to express there's evil in the world, right? We also have hope. And we need to be careful because as Christians, our hope sometimes keeps us from expressing the hurt, right? So we have hope in two ways. We have hope now that God has forgiven us of our sins in Christ, and that reconciles us to the Father, right? So we can have right now a restored relationship with God. We don't have to be angry at God. We don't have to be afraid of God. We can be restored as children through Christ. That's gospel hope we have right now. And then there's this waiting hope, this future hope we look forward to. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to take away all the oppression. There will be no more disease, no more sin, no more death. That's a future hope we're looking forward to. You see that? So as Christians, we have immediate hope and a restored relationship with God, and we have a future hope that God's going to fix everything that's broken in the world. But don't allow that hope to keep you from hurting with people that are hurting. Romans says, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. And so Solomon's saying, yeah, look at the oppressed people and cry. See, there's no one to comfort them. There are tears here. Pay attention. See this. Now, the other extreme would be hardcore cynicism, right, where you just, you talk like this all the time. And that would be that would be bad, too. I thought about actually titling the sermon today, my original rough draft. I kind of plan out the whole series together, and my just first thought sermon title was Better Off Dead, right? Because that's kind of what he's saying here. <laughs> he's like, Better Off Dead, but I thought that might confuse you. There was a weird 80s movie with that title. Um, and again, I think his main point is that's not all there is. There's, there is hope. We can find contentment in God when you step back and look at the whole trajectory of the whole book, Okay. So we have to be willing to see that, like him to say, man, this is terrible. This is really, really terrible. But also recognize we have a hope that this is not all there is. And so he says, recognize the oppression, recognize the evil in the world, and deal with it. And so as Christians right now, one of the words that's often used for oppression in society is the word uh, injustice 
or social justice, social injustice. Have you all heard these phrases? It's actually become really a hot topic. So for those that read Christian blogs and literature and books, it's really hot right now in the Christian world. There's a debate going on about how much should we use even the phrase social justice and what does it mean? Because there's two ways to take it. Um, Some on one side are saying we shouldn't use it because it's an established word and atheistic Marxist academics have a very clear meaning for it. And it means this one particular thing that as Christians we don't agree with, so therefore we're going to let them define the word and we're not going to use the word. Um, And that's, I mean, I understand that perspective. Those are people that kind of come to it with like, how is it used out there in the world? Okay, I disagree. I'm a Christian. Problem is with that, and again, if if you believe that, that's fine. I don't don't think we really need to split over this issue. I think it's an issue of, of definition. Just know how you're defining it, right? Others use the word because they look at the Bible and they say, in the Bible,